downloading this sermon brought to you by the preaching ministry of Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas, Nevada, Dr. David Tice. For more sermons in both audio and video format, we encourage you to visit experienceliberty.com. Also, for a word of encouragement, insight, and biblical inspiration, follow Pastor David Tice's blog at davidtice.com. So without further ado, let's open our hearts to the Word of God. You know, a lot of different things where you get to choose what you want. It didn't always used to be that way. It used to be age-graded. So if you were 20 to 30 years old, say, you go to this class. If you're 30 to 40, you go to this class. If you're 40 to 50, you go to this class. But as the church has grown, we don't hold tight to those those strict age barriers so that you might go into a class and you might see somebody, see somebody who's 18 sitting beside somebody who's a senior citizen. And that's kind of the way heaven will be. And so we like it that way here as well. But when it was age graded, there was a guy named Tom Galusha. And Tom taught the 65 plus. And Tom's class, 65 plus, you go to Tom Galusha's class. That's where you go. And Tom Galusha used to say, you know, I'm not concerned with growth in my class. It's only a matter of time before everybody gets there, because everybody wants to get Tom Galusha's class at some point or another. It's only a matter of time, because after Tom Galusha's class, the only class was heaven. That was the class after Tom Galusha's class. So everybody wanted to get there eventually, and nobody wanted to leave. It was a great class for Tom. Tom's in heaven. He's been there for several years now. But I was thinking about him as I was preparing this week. It's only a matter of time. Sometimes we get so caught up in the moment of our circumstances that we forget that God has a bigger plan in place. You ever realize that? You ever been consumed with what's happening this week or what's happening in this season of life that we forget that there's a larger tapestry that God is weaving and today is just part of that, that large mosaic that God is creating? In our study that we've been going through over the last few weeks entitled Tomorrowland, we've been looking specifically at 1 Kings, and we started 1 Kings 17. Today we'll be in 1 Kings 20. And throughout the entirety of the series, we've been focusing on the life of one individual. His name is Elijah. And through Elijah's circumstances and through Elijah's passion and his obedience to God, God allowed him to see wonderful victories. If you'll forgive me for just a moment to rehearse where we've been, Elijah saw his king and saw his queen leading their nation in a place it never should have gone. And so he prays that God would use him to bring um, the attention of God's people back to God. So he prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, and God answered that prayer. In a contest between the false gods of Jezebel and the true God of Israel, God demonstrated his power. He sends a fireball, and it consumes the entire offering that Elijah had put up there, and God gets the victory. In fact, there's a national revival. The people say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. We serve Jehovah. The Lord, he is God. And God blessed the nation with rain. Jezebel is not so inclined to celebrate. In fact, she asks for a bounty on Elijah's head. And last week, if you remember in verse, uh, chapter 19, we saw how Elijah dealt with the circumstances of that reward or that wanted poster being put on his life. He struggled with it, and yet God gave him a vision that it wasn't about Jezebel, it wasn't about Elijah, it wasn't about fireballs, and it wasn't about altars. God had a tomorrow that he was preparing, and all of those circumstances were leading up to the second phase of God's work in Elijah's life. 
When we read 1 Kings chapter 20, you can go through the entire chapter. Elijah is not mentioned once, but his fingerprints are all over the chapter. And in 1 Kings chapter 20, we see God moving in the next phase of his plan to show forth his glory and demonstrate his power. In verse number one, if you're with me, say yes. The Bible says this, and Ben-Hadad, doesn't that sound like an intimidating name? Doesn't sound like he was playing center for Georgetown in 1985. He's just Ben, hey, dad. Even his name is masculine, Ben, hey, and then dad. Who's your daddy? <laughs> and Ben, hey, dad, the king of Syria gathered all his hosts together. He gets his entire army and with him, not just himself, but 32 kings with him. And there's not just 32 kings and their armies, there's horses, there's chariots. And he went and besieged Samaria and he warred against it. And he sent messengers to Ahab, that wicked, scurlish king. And he says to king, uh, the king of Israel, thus saith Ben-Hadad, thy silver, thy gold, it's mine. And thy wives also. <laughs> I could imagine Ahab being like, can you take Jezebel first? <laughs> thy wives also and thy children, even thy goodliest, are mine. Lord, teach us today some things as we understand that it's only a matter of time. And in the season we're in, sometimes we'll be frustrated, we might be discouraged, but it's only a matter of time. And that you are God. You are not just the God of Elijah, the God of Moses. You are the God of this generation. So we, may we yield ourselves to you and learn from the truths of this principles. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. To give us a little bit of context about where we are, if we'll go to the next slide, this thing's giving me a little bit of trouble. If you get a little bit of context about where we are, the uh, children of Israel are God's chosen people. In fact, Israel was chosen by God in Genesis chapter 12 that they would represent him. The word Israel, up there in the top left of your screen, that's it in Hebrew, means the prince of God. When you see the word Israel, even today, the word Israel means prince of God. They were supposed to show forth the goodness, the majesty, the glory of God. That's what the name Israel means. Israel enjoyed the apex of their power. The greatest season of their entire nation was under King Solomon. There was so much wealth to go around that the Bible tells us that people saw silver on the ground like you might see a loose nickel in the McDonald's parking lot. Oh, look, there's a piece of silver. There was gold, there was wealth, there was bounty. There was so much affluence during the time of King Solomon that the children of Israel just lived in plenty. But when Solomon died around 1000 BC, give or take, when Solomon died about 1000 BC or so, the Bible tells us that his nation goes into a civil war. And much like our civil war in the 1800s, the nation of Israel is divided between north and south. From the time of about 1 Kings 5, when you read forward, every time you see the word Israel being used, it is not in conjunction as the nation of a whole, with Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Jerusalem is now the capital of Judah, which had separated from Israel. There's a schism between the two, and you see two separate nations from about 1 Kings 5 moving forward, Israel up north and Judah in the south. 
That's why we see King Ahab as the king of Israel. He's not the king of all of God's chosen people. He's the king of the northern uh, kingdom, which is Israel. At his juncture, there is a rising threat. This is an artifact taken from what people would say was the world's first empire. There were strong nations prior to the Assyrians, but many historians would call the Assyrian Empire the first empire. So you had strong nations like the Egyptians that were strong and they had a great military. You had the Israelis that were a strong, good military. What the Assyrians did differently is they would come into a land and they would assume those people group as their own. You no longer have your own identity. You are now part of the collective. They would deport people. So if they went into the Mesopotamian regions, they would take people out of this place and they would deport them over there and they would use them for slaves or for labor or for their own commerce. And they would take other people from there and they would deport them. They would make them lose their national or familial identity and assimilate them into Assyrian culture. At the time of the writing of 1 Kings chapter 20, we're at about 900 B.C., and Ahab has been the king for about a decade or so of Israel. And the growing threat of Assyria is being led by this king. This is an artifact from the Assyrian Empire. Is being led by this king, and his name is Ben-Hadad. The Assyrian Empire would eventually reach to all corners of Mesopotamia, even down into Egypt. It would be a very large, it would be a very robust kingdom. And as this kingdom is burgeoning in its effect, they are now knocking on the door of God's people. God's people who are to reflect the work of God. God's people who are supposed to demonstrate the power of God. God's people now have an enemy named Ben-Hadad knocking at the door. They come to the king of Israel, who are supposed to be God's chosen people. And Ben-Hadad says to Ahab, I'm coming over there, and I want you to give me all your gold. I want you to give me all your silver. I'm going to take your wives, and I'm going to take your children, and all the goodly things. Now, this is the king of Israel. Let's see what his response is in verse number four. And the king of Israel answered and said, We serve the one true God. You shall not trespass against his holy nation. Did you guys see that in there? If you saw that, say yes. Please, I'm glad nobody said yes because you're not reading out the Bible. You're just making stuff up at that point. <laughs> the king of Israel does not stand and say, We serve God. He doesn't follow the path of David that says, Who do you think you are? He doesn't follow the path of Solomon in his wisdom. He doesn't follow the good kings of courage who stood. Ahab, when confronted with Ben-Hadad, I'm going to take your gold, your silver, your wives, your children, and everything you got. The great king Ahab says, My lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine. <coughs> And all that I have. What a stud muffin. <laughs> have you ever been more disappointed in reading the scripture? We're going to come in. We're going to take your gold. We're going to take your silver. Can you imagine his wives? <laughs> like, oh, honey, you're not going to let him. You just let him say that. His kids. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. We see here 
a principle about Ahab that is true today, and it's this principle. Number one, when you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything. Ahab was a person who with his life, he had no morals, he had no convictions, he had no principles, precepts, he had nothing upon which he stood. Whatever worked or satisfied his itch at the time is how he lived his life. There was no scruples about Ahab. He was just a person that went with the flow and whatever felt good. And so he says to Ben, hey, Dad, you can have whatever you want because I stand for nothing. Oh, we worship Baal now? Fine. Oh, we worship Jehovah now? Fine. I stand for nothing. Notice a couple of things about him. The trouble reveals his precepts. When there's a time of trouble in his life, he gives it all away. A time of trouble comes in, he doesn't go back to the word of God. He doesn't stand upon that which is true. He doesn't even go and get advice from Elijah. At this point, he's just willing to let it all go away. Can I ask you this? What do you stand for? What are the precepts in your life that will not be shaken? What are the laws you will not violate? What are the things you will or you will not do? It doesn't matter what trouble comes. Ahab was a person who gave away everything at the drop of a hat. The Bible says this in Psalm 102, Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call, answer me speedily. A person who understands the very word of God understands that all people go through trouble. This past week, did anybody have a perfect week? So there's a person in here, somebody in here had some trouble this week, right? Maybe got some bad news, maybe experienced a difficulty, maybe got a boo-boo. Everybody goes through trouble. But what's fascinating is that time will always tell where your precepts are. What are the laws of your life? What are the convictions you stand by? If you're not married, what kind of person will you or will you not date? If you are married, have you decided we will not end this thing? It is till death do us part. We will not divorce. We might murder each other, but we will not divorce. You see, there's precepts in life that when trouble come, people look for a way to evacuate, look for a way to get out. And Ahab, oh, sure, you want my wife, you want my kids, you want my gold, got and silver, take it all. Do I get to live? Sure. Trouble reveals his precepts, but also this, time reveals principles. There's principles that are, the only principle that Ahab has in his life is do what's good for me. If it's going to make Jezebel happy, good. At least I'll be able to sleep tonight. If it's going to give me a little bit of wealth, good. At least I'll get to do that. Every principle, time reveals his principle. This is either, this is fascinating. Every one of our principles will be revealed. Some time, from time to time, in a world that loves to put filters on our pictures, in a world that loves to show up and say, look, this is it. We have reality TV that is so fake. The real lives of whatever housewives. It's fake. It's edited, 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 and cut down for 45 minutes. It's, we live in a, we, for crying out loud, us who live here in Las Vegas, we know that better than anybody. Talk to a friend about Las Vegas, and they think, whoa, Las Vegas, and they have no, no they know nothing about Dropicana. They know nothing. 
have you tried to go through those roundabouts up in Summerlin? I feel like I'm just getting to know that about 15 years in, but there was one day when I just went around, like from, I spent lunch there, just going around in a circle, not knowing where I was supposed to get off. In a whole world that is fake and glamour and glitz and smoke and mirrors and lights, God wants us to have authenticity and time will reveal our principles. Your life over a period of time will demonstrate what you truly believe in. Your children will will reflect your authenticity with God. The people that are closest to you, there is time that reveals principles. And notice Jesus said this, there's neither, nothing is covered that shall not be revealed. Oh, you can hide stuff from me because I'm I'm pretty ignorant. You can hide stuff from a lot of folks, neither hid that shall not be known. Who you really are is who will always be seen. And so God desires authenticity. God desires a real relationship with him. And here's Ahab, a person in a time of trouble, forget about it. In a time of difficulty, forget about it. Notice this, but teammates will reveal priorities. In verse number six, Ben-Hadad changes the terms of the surrender. He says, yet I'll send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time, and they shall search thine house and the houses of thy servants, and it shall be that whatsoever is pleasant in thy eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. Here's the, here's the twist. When Ahab says, okay, I'll give you everything, he says, nope, we're going to change it. Instead of you bringing me a gift, I'm going to send a couple of my boys into your house, and they're going to go through and take whatever they want. That's different. That's different. I bring out a care package to an enemy. We good? We good? We good? Then the enemy coming into my house and rampaging it. When Ahab sees that, the Bible tells us that he goes to the elders of the people in verse number eight, and all the elders and all the people said unto him, hearken not unto him, nor consent. He goes to the people who lead his nation. He says, guys, this is what he wants to do. And Ahab finally grows up and becomes the king that he's supposed to be. He sends word back to Ben-Hadad, no, you're not going to do this. You're not just going to come in and run rampage all throughout our kingdom. We're going to stand up to you. When Ben-Hadad hears this, he mounts up his uh, horses. He gets ready to go. And the Bible tells us this in verse number 10, that Ben-Hadad says to Ahab, the gods do to me. And more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls of all the people that follow me, I'm going to make you dust. And this is one of the boldest, baddest things that Ahab says in his entire life. This little white bread and Velveeta cheese boy says this in verse, verse number 11. And the king of Israel said to Ben-Hadad, tell him, let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it off. Whoa. I imagine Ahab almost like Barney Fife. And he says to Ben-Hadad, don't pretend like you're taking your harness off of your horse from a victory because you're just putting it on. Oh, that ticks off Ben-Hadad. How does Ahab get the courage? There's two principles about friendship that we see here. Number one, 1 Corinthians 15, it says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Do you have good friends in your life? Are there people that speak truth, affirming words into your life that help you grow in your walk with God? The Bible says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. 
Who's a person that is not a good friend in your life? Somebody you probably shouldn't hang out with. If a name just came to your mind, probably a good person not to be hanging out with. Look what the Bible says. Be not deceived. You ever seen somebody lie to themselves? Go to Walmart at 11.30 tonight. You'll see a whole lot of people that are lying to themselves. They said, it's okay for me to leave the house dressed like this. They're deceiving (laughs) themselves. It's not cool when somebody lies to themselves. Be not deceived. Don't lie to yourself. Evil communications do what? They corrupt good manners. The word communications is lifestyles there. You are not stronger than a bad friend. If you have a friend in your life that encourages you to do that which is wrong, they will tear you down. No, I'm just going to be a light to them. No, you won't. If you think that you are, you're lying to yourself. You've deceived yourself. Not me saying it. Who says it? God, the guy who wrote the book. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. So even the best of us, when we're around a negative influence, will be torn down. Notice what the Bible says on the positive side. In Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Just as a bad influence will tear me down, a good influence will encourage me. Who's the bad influence in your life that you need to eliminate? Who's the good influence in your life that you need to adhere to more closely, that you need to spend more time with? Who's the person in your life that whenever you get around them, they say, you know, I was just talking, and the pastor said, and my wife said, and my dad said, and these persons said, and this and this, and you're just like, eesh, stop hanging out with them. Well, I can't because we've known each other for 15 years. Had those been a good 15 years in your relationship? No, it's really been toxic. Then stop drinking poison, right? Is there somebody that when you're around them, they encourage you? Oh, lean into that relationship. Grow in that relationship. And this is hard. It's easy on a Sunday morning when we're talking about God and the Bible to say, oh yeah, sever that relationship, grow into this relationship, till it's your sister, or it's your cousin, or it's your aunt, or your mom. My mom might be a bad influence in my life. Only you can answer that question. I'm not saying anything bad about your mom. But I do know this, that evil communications, don't lie to yourself, evil communications corrupt good manners. And if there's good intents that you have for your life, but every time you're around somebody, they negatively affect you, then that's a relationship that should be severed. Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Oh, if there's good relationships in my life, I should lean into those more. I should nurture those more. I should value those. I should prioritize those. Because of the encouragement of these people, the Bible says that God gives Ahab some courage, some strength. All right, Ben-Hadad, don't you think, don't you act like a person taking his harness off because you're just putting your harness on. And there's some moxie that grows up inside of Ahab because of the people that he's around. When Ben-Hadad hears this, he's ticked off. I'm going to wipe the Israelis off the face of this earth. I'm not going to take tribute and tax from them. I'm going to destroy them all and just take whatever they have then. So Ben-Hadad mounts an army with 32 kings, thousands of people, and they come to fight against Israel. When they come to fight against Israel, 
Oh, he's put his foot in his mouth, and we find out that nobody leads the king. Now, I want you to see something that's interesting, because through this entire study, we've been focusing on a man named Elijah. And Elijah, he prayed, and he said, oh, God, would you not let it rain? And God grants his request, and then he stands in front of the, the, the whole company of the children of Israel, and there's fire that falls down from heaven. And when fire falls down from heaven, the people say, the Lord, he is God. And for weeks, the entire focus of this series has been on Elijah, and on Elijah, and on Elijah. And look what Elijah is doing but when you read the entire chapter of 1 Kings chapter 20, Elijah's name is not mentioned once, but his fingerprints are all over it. Look at verse number 13. The Bible says this, And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, the king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. We see an unnamed prophet. This is not Elijah. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you understand when we started this series, it was illegal to even talk about the Lord. The prophets of God were being executed. Elijah stood up before God and he said, God, only I, I am the only one that has not bowed his knee to you. God, I'm the only one that stood for you. Elijah thinks he is all by himself 10 years prior to 1 Kings chapter 20. But when we get to 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse number 13, we see not Elijah expending his influence. We see an unnamed prophet. Check it out. What Elijah started doing 10 years ago is starting to see fruit in his present day. There's not just one prophet, but we're going to see in verse number 22, there's another prophet. And then we're going to see in verse number 28, another prophet. And then you go to verse number 35. There are four prophets of God because one man was just dumb enough to believe that God could use him. And now, not only has he multiplied unto himself, but he has quadrupled his ministry. And God is using not him to speak to a king because Elijah doesn't waste his time talking to kings. He spends his days serving the king of kings, God Almighty, Jehovah. He talks with God. He doesn't waste his time talking to kings. That's something to get excited about. And so here he is, this unnamed prophet. Notice that Elijah initiated Tomorrowland. He was one that started this whole thing. His instruction evolves. So he's no longer just wasting, spending his time trying to convince Ahab, trying to convince Jezebel. Come on, Ahab. Come on, Jezebel. Come on, Ahab. Come on, Jezebel. Oh, no. Now he's investing in younger people. And now we see four prophets have come up, and his influence has spread. We see that the princes stand up, too. Verse number 14, and Ahab says to this unnamed prophet, by whom? Who's going to go and fight? And he said, thus saith the Lord. Notice the confidence of this unnamed prophet. By, thus saith the Lord, even by the young princes of the provinces. Who's going to go and fight? The young people. But they're, but they're not prepared. They haven't seen the battles. They're just green. 
There's no way that they could go fight out against Ben-Hadad. God would rather use somebody that is pure rather than somebody that is powerful. And he wants somebody who will believe in him rather than somebody that is bold in himself. So God's about ready to use a whole bunch of 20-somethings and maybe some older teenagers, and they're going to go out and fight against Ben-Hadad. Notice these unprepared princes, these people who have not seen battle, these people who have not been tested. God says, I'm just going to use them. So in verse number 14, God says, you're going to lead all of these young princes, 230 of them, and 7,000 go out to fight the vast armies of a 33-king army. The Bible tells us this in verse number 17. Look what the Bible says. And the young men of the princes of the provinces went out first. In verse number 19, so these young men of the princes of the provinces came out of the city and the army which followed them. Check out verse number 20. And they slew everyone, his man, and the Syrians. What's the next word? They got out of town. We had a dog named Lassie. And Lassie wasn't allowed inside. And Lassie's whole purpose in life was to be able to be inside the kitchen. That's what she lived for. And Lassie, she would sit by when it was nice in the spring and the autumn days when you have the doors open and the windows open. Lassie would start out in the morning. She'd put her paw just inside of the kitchen from the sliding glass door. And then if no one noticed, Lassie might put her front paws And then she might scoot her whole body inside of the the house and just lay there. And when she got really brave, Lassie would go all the way across the kitchen and it was like she got to the promised land of carpet. And Lassie would go over to the carpet and she would either be in a ball or she would lay on her side with all fours and just, ah, enjoying the carpet until mom came downstairs. The only person more scared of my mom than Lassie was all five of her children. <laughs> and when mom came downstairs, mom would say, Lassie! And Lassie would go, Hah! and Lassie would put her tail between her legs and outside and turn around. <laughs> the young princes wipe out the Syrians And the Bible tells us that they fled. Can you see them like a beat dog running away as those young 20-somethings stand up and say, Ah! You don't know us! They're high-fiving and chest-bumping each other, and Ahab's in the back saying, That's what I said. (laughs) These unprepared princes, I'm reminded of this that God has his people in every situation. Do you know there's people all around this valley? I'm so impressed with this fact. In this room right now, there's about 300 men and women. From this place tomorrow, there will be people on the Las Vegas Strip. There'll be people up in Summerlin and Henderson and North Las Vegas, out on Creech Air Force Base and in Nellis Air Force Base. And there'll be people in East Las Vegas and some folks will be downtown. There are going to be people of God all over this city tomorrow, and you're in the same room as them today. Could it just be that God has his people in every situation? You're his people. You are his generation. When you go to school and when you go to work, you're not there just so you can make an income and be another customer for Envy Energy. 
You have the power of God upon your life. You are God's person in every situation. But notice this, God has his people in every generation. There's a lie of Satan that's perpetrated upon young people. You can't do anything for God until you're this age. By the way, there's a lie of Satan perpetrated upon older people that says you're too old to do anything for God. There's a lie of Satan upon middle-aged people that say you're too busy to do something from God. And every single one of those falsehoods are a lie from the pit of hell. God has his people in every generation. And on this day, he chooses to, he chooses to use a group of unprepared princes. It reminds me of somewhat of our nation's founding. When our nation began, we see about our founding fathers that George Washington... Do you know how old George Washington was when he became the father of this nation? He was 44 years old. If you ask me, it's the perfect age. <laughs> 44 years old, and he was the father of this nation. Look at the ages of the other people that helped found this nation. John Jay, who was the first Supreme Court justice, 30 years old. Aaron Burr, Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense. John Marshall, who was the Supreme Court Justice. Benjamin Rush, who's the father of the public school system. When Thomas Jefferson penned the words, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, he was not some scholar in his uh, latter years. He was only 33 years old. Alexander Hamilton had a Broadway musical made of him. James Madison, James Monroe, these people who were presidents of the United States, these people who founded our nation, they did it at a young age. Never subscribe to ageism because God uses old people, God uses young people. Notice this verse, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength. If you're a young man, go do something. Stop playing Call of Duty and fulfill God's call to your duty. Young men are to work. Young men are to do things. They're to be active. They're supposed to be out accomplishing something. Being Their, their strength, their glory is in their strength. But notice this, the beauty of old men is their gray head. Just because somebody can't lift as much or work as long as they once could, God places great value on a gray-haired person as well because if you've got breath in your lungs, God wants to use you. The glory of young men is their strength and the beauty of old men is their gray head. What a beautiful verse he uses these princes. And then the Bible tells us that there's some unlearned pagans. When the Syrians get whipped, God tells them through a prophet, hey, uh, they're going to come back in a short season. Make sure you prepare for the second siege of the Syrians. The Syrians come back. They regroup. Wow, man, they whooped us bad. Why did they whoop us? They're ignorant. Look at their ignorance. In verse number 23, the Bible says, and the servants of the king of Syria said unto them, their gods are gods of the hills. Oh, Jehovah, if you're in the hills, watch out for Jehovah because he's in the hills. I'm so thankful that God is not just the God of the hills. He goes through with us through the valleys in the dark times of our life. In fact, the Bible says he goes with us through the valley of the shadow of death. God is not just the God of the hills. He's the God of the valleys as well. But these ignorant and unlearned pagans, they say, we fought them up in the hills. Let's fight them down in a valley next time. So in verse 27, they go and fight in a valley, and the children of Israel were numbered 
and all that were present, and they went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks. There was such a huge army that it looked like the children of Israel were two little baby lambs. And if you were to look at the battle down there in the valley, the two little lambs are looking around, should have been killed, verse 29, and they pitched over against the other seven days, and so it was that on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel did what? They slew of the Syrians, look at the number, and 100,000 footmen in one day. And if they had a spy balloon, they knocked it out of the sky as well. <laughs> it was a complete and utter defeat for the Syrians. They were unlearned. They misunderstood God's ability. Never, never underestimate God. Never underestimate God. Ne- well, I just don't think God... Never underestimate God. They misunderstood God's affection. Never underestimate God's affection and love towards you. Do you remember what he says about them in verse 27? They're like two little lambs. This is how God views his people. God's not going to let anything happen to those little lambs. Here they are in the middle of the Syrians, and they're not even the best people, but God says, oh, I'm not going to let anything. This is how God views you. You're tender. You're not some goat. You're not some donkey. You're not even a collie trying to get on the carpet. God looks at you and says, oh, you have va- I love you. I want to care for you. They misunderstood God's affection, his ability, and they misunderstood God's action. Sad verse coming up, because when they slew 100,000, we'll see in the next verse, they killed 27,000 other people. A huge victory for the Israelites. Tremendous outpouring of God's power. But the Bible tells us that they make an easy choice. Ahab had everything handed to him on the plate, but rather than making the hard choice of doing what was difficult in that time, he makes the easy choice and life becomes harder. Third principle from today's lesson. Today's hard choices make life easier tomorrow. Let me say it one more time. Today's hard choices make life easier tomorrow. In verse number 32, so they girded sackcloth. Ben-Hadad does. And they put ropes on their heads, and they came to the king of Israel and said, Thy servant Ben-Hadad saith, I pray thee, let me live. After the battle, King Ben-Hadad, the guy who was going to rip and rampage, comes in and he puts dirt all on his face. Do you remember when Saddam Hussein came out of his spider hole? If you remember that, say yes. If you don't remember it, Google Saddam Hussein spider hole. It's one of the best American moments of the last 20 years. Saddam Hussein comes out of his spider hole. I am Saddam Hussein. Yeah, we'll deal with you later, buddy. Ben Hadad does the same thing. He comes out and says, would you please let me live? And notice what Ahab's response is. And Ahab said, is he yet alive? He is my brother. (laughs) What did you just say? Is there any time when you read the Bible and you're just like, oh, no, 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 you did. Oh, is Ben Hadad, he's my brother. 
20 minutes ago he was going to take all your gold and silver and wives and children? He's my brother. They make an alliance. And in that alliance, they cede some land to each other, and there's a few streets named after Ahab and perhaps a library named after Ahab up in Nineveh, and they let him go. He makes an alliance with the enemy. When you go down to verse number 35, there's a son of the prophet that comes and confronts Ahab. And in verse number 39, when he confronts Ahab, he shares with him a scenario. He says, this wrong was done upon me. Would you help me deal with this wrong that was done upon me? He, he, he puts a scenario, a parable in front of him. And Ahab, in all of his cockiness and his ignorance of letting Ben-Hadad go back to Syria, he says to his Jewish brother, he says, what is that to me? It's your problem. You deal with your own stuff. And the Bible tells us that the, the prophet takes his mask off, almost like Mission Impossible, takes his mask off, and Ahab's like, ah, oh, junk, you're one of the sons of the prophets. You work for Elijah, don't you? Yep. And I just want you to know, because of what you've done with Ben-Hadad, there's going to be big problems for you. In fact, dogs are going to lick up your blood. Oh. But he had an apathy towards evil. He had an alliance. He was comfortable with somebody that he had no business being comfortable with. He makes an affinity with them. And he has apathy towards evil. It's not that big of a deal. You deal with your problem. You de- I'll give mercy to this person, but I'm not going to give mercy to that person. And the Bible tells us he becomes accountable for his actions and emotionally unstable in his leadership. In fact, if you go to the end of verse number 43, the king of Israel went to his house heavy and displeased and came to Samaria. And the final nail in Ahab's coffin comes because of his emotional instability. In this place of Tomorrowland, God doesn't even speak of Elijah because it's no longer about Elijah. It's never been about Ahab. Had nothing to do with Jezebel. It wasn't about rain and it wasn't about fireballs. It was all about the glory of God. So when the prophets speak, they say, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Because very few people care what we have to say, but we represent a holy God and we have the importance of sharing the truth of that holy God. And God uses people in every generation and God uses people in every situation, but it is incumbent upon us to speak his truth. And wherever you go tomorrow, remember this, that it's not about your circumstances tomorrow and it's not about your circumstances this week. God is using your life and he's molding a tapestry of mosaic that is beautiful. And when you step back and you see, oh, this is for the glory of God, I want to be faithful where I am. So whether you're at the base or whether you're in downtown or whether you're in South Las Vegas or Henderson or North Las Vegas tomorrow, remember that you have the grave responsibility not just to be a hard worker, not just to be a person who speaks truth and is virtuous and moral, but to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that we're all sinners. And because of our sin, we deserve hell, but Jesus Christ died on a cross, was buried, and rose again to pay for our sins. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the same God who gave deliverance to a wicked man named Ahad will save you from your sins as well. The Bible tells us that he died on a cross so that you could have salvation. He was buried and he rose again so that your sins could be forgiven if you simply put your faith and trust in him. You can know the God of Elijah. You can know the timeless God who brings victory in the past and the present and wants to have you live a better tomorrow today. Father, I pray that you would use the words of this passage to encourage us to be the men and women you want us to be. And I ask this in Jesus' name. 
hope that message was an encouragement to your heart. Now for weekly updates and for information about Liberty Baptist Church, be sure to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at LBC of Las Vegas. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.